Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Justin Bergner, author of Solving the Price is Right. Most listeners will be familiar with The Price is Right. It's a popular game show that is into its second half century. While the show itself is obviously intriguing, what Justin has done is not only analyze the mathematics that underlies successful strategies in this game, but show how these strategies can apply in the real world. It's a fascinating interplay between TV's longest-running game show and the outside world. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me on, Jim, and for that nice introduction. It's a pleasure. Justin, what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, interestingly, the idea for this book originated way back in 1999. I had graduated from Yale a year earlier with a degree in economics and mathematics, focusing on game theory on the economics side and probability theory on the mathematics side. And I thought about attending graduate school in economics to get my PhD and focus on game theory, but chose to enter the business world instead, spending a number of years in management consulting, which ultimately led me to business school and investment management, where today I work as an equity portfolio manager and analyst. I don't regret foregoing the academic path, but I always yearn to leave my mark in the world of game theory, which came together with this book idea shortly after college. And I started working on it back in 2000 when I was between jobs using VHS recordings at the time, but then found employment quicker than expected and tabled the idea for the next 18 years. I guess you could say that writing this book is a consolation prize to myself of sorts for not going down the academic path, as well as an opportunity to share my love of game theory and probability theory with the world. Well, Jason, your book certainly does that. Your book focuses on the fact that The Price is Right does involve probability in game theory. Do you think it is possible for people to read your book and get some ideas that will help them make decisions which will improve their lives? I certainly hope so, Jim. Um, There are really two aspects to the book, Um, employing probability in game theory to achieve better outcomes and avoiding human biases that lead to poor outcomes. I would actually submit that perhaps two-thirds of the potential improvement versus observed performance on the show comes from avoiding our own natural shortcomings, and perhaps one-third from actually doing the math to optimize um, you know, one's strategy and approach. Um, you know, if you take contestants row bidding, and I'm sure we'll get into that in more detail, there are actually you know, two key behavioral pitfalls over-anchoring on prior bids and underbidding, uh, which is in large part due to the fear of going over. And then there's the concept of broadening one's bid or increasing the set of values over which one can win relative to the other players. And that's more of a mathematical concept. So, you know, even in contestants row, there are really kind of two main behavioral biases and one major area for mathematical improvement. So it's a combination of, you know, math and, and behavioral analysis. Um, You know, although most of the listeners will be familiar with The Price is Right, why don't you start by describing the basic setup for The Price is Right by discussing the following questions. What is the basic game and how does one win? Sure. This is probably um, familiar territory for some listeners. Uh, But, you know, in the classic Price is Right, pre-COVID, there were 300 you know, uh, I guess, 
individuals in the audience. And over the course of the show, nine of those are called down to contestants row. Uh, the first four that are called down bid on a prize uh, from left to right prize that's uh, shown on stage. And the winner is the contestant who is closest to the actual retail price of that prize without going over. Uh, the winner in the bidding round then comes on stage to play a pricing game, and he or she is replaced in contestants row by another member of the audience. That new contestant then bids first with the bidding progressing left to right and wrapping around as necessary. Once the first three contestants make it up on stage and play pricing games for prizes of $5,000 to $30,000 and sometimes more, they then spin the big wheel in the showcase showdown to determine which of the three goes to the showcase. And that's the contestant who spins closest to $1 without going over in one spin or a combination of two spins. This sequence is then repeated in the second half of the show with three more bidding rounds, three more pricing games, and a second showcase show to determine who else will go to the showcase. And then in the showcase, each of the two finalists bids on a separate set of prizes with the contestant who is closest to his or her showcase without going over winning, provided both contestants don't overbid, in which case there is no showcase winner, which is, you know, an unfortunate thing to see. <laughs> um, how, how did your background as an equity analyst help you analyze the prices right? I can sort of see how the math and econ did what that you learned in school, but what did you learn as an equity analyst that helped you? Sure. I mean, the interesting thing is when I started writing this book, I was much more focused on the math um, and, and game theory. But as I got into it, I really got into the behavioral dynamics. You know, as an equity analyst, you're often looking at why markets and investors are wrong in how they price securities. And that often ties to human biases and shortcomings on the part of market participants. You're also evaluating strong and weak decisions you know, by management teams day in and day out. And so my experience as an equity analyst helped me analyze contestant behavior in terms of being on the lookout for some of these biases and shortcomings and then relating these shortcomings to what I observe in the business world and in the finance world. You know, I think this relates to the start of the book where you introduce seven psychological suppositions. Why don't you discuss a couple of the ones that you feel are most interesting? Sure. So in the summary chapter, I focused on the key behavioral observations um, because I thought they were some of the more holistic uh, or relatable conclusions from, you know, a book which examines a show that has contestants row bidding, showcase show and showcase, and you know, over 75 pricing games, each are, which are a little bit different. So on the behavioral side, in terms of key conclusions, the one that definitely stood out the most is the underbidding bias in contestants row, which occurs for a variety of reasons. Bidders are afraid of going over in their bid and not having their bid reviewed they're also prone to air low, you know, for unfamiliar products or products typically purchased on sale. But the first three bidders would likely each do a fair degree better if they placed more aggressive bids in contestants row bidding and risked overbidding more frequently. 
So that's one. Second is the underperformance of the contestant bidding on the second showcase, uh, which runs sort of counter to what one might expect. And this relates to the second contestant getting anxiety in response to the bid on the first showcase and often bidding too tight, leading to a high number of overbids and underperformance. So that would be a second one. On the positive side, contestants generally showed good probabilistic thinking in simple games, which, you know, I guess makes sense from an evolutionary construct. You know, if we can do <laughs> odds in our head, we have a better chance of survival. Um, but they also showed poor probabilistic thinking in out-of-the-box uh, situations in various games. For example, when extending a pricing game would increase their chances of winning. And then I guess lastly, there was generally a lack of strategic patience among contestants in games that required time for the price to kind of reach the price of the prize that the contestant was trying to win and needed to price out. So that occurred in the card game, the range game, and in 10 chances. And that was noteworthy as well. Those are the you know, more interesting you know, psychological um, observations I would call out. Okay. Chapters two to five of the book focus on contestants' role, which you described earlier. What is clipping and how does it affect the strategy of the bidder in position four, as well as the bidders in positions one through three? Sure. So I coined the term clip clipping um, to describe when a bidder bids one or a few dollars over a preceding bid, effectively marginalizing that prior bid because the prior bid can now only prevail if it's, you know, spot on or within a few dollars of the actual retail price. Uh, some people use other terms than clipping, but that was the one that I found <laughs> sort of. No, it's good. I can understand it. Yeah. So the fourth bidder's best strategy, which I think most people recognize is to clip one of the three prior bidders by bidding $1 more than one of those bids or to bid, you know, $1 a very low value if the, the fourth bidder is fairly confident that all the prior bidders have gone over. So the fourth bidder's best strategy is usually to clip. And then on the flip side, bidders one through three are well served to consider how they might bid so as to avoid being clipped by bidder four. One way of doing that is to bid high so as to self-limit the range of values over which their bid can win. And we'll discuss that, I think, more as we discuss contestants row bidding in more detail. And the other way they can do it is by bidding in such a way that bidder four is more likely to clip another bidder versus their own bid. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you do introduce a couple of terms, which, uh, as I say, they're sort of your own, but I know that they're, you know, the, I know that they're grounded in what's happening on the show. What is anchoring and how does it appear in the world of stock investing? Sure. So anchoring on the price is right. And anchoring occurs, you know, throughout our lives in ways that make us look very unsophisticated at times. But on the price is right. It's represented when a low bid by the first bidder leads to low bids by the second and or third bidder. And conversely, when a high bid by the first bidder leads to you know high bids by the, the second and or third bidder. 
And the end result is that the first three bids end up being more clustered on the number line than they would otherwise be, which sets up the fourth bidder to come along and clip one of the other bids, you know, usually the highest bid, and really capture a large portion of the number line for himself or herself to potentially, you know, have the best bid and prevail in contestants row bidding. As in life, you know, some anchoring is usually justified because we're learning from the prior bids, but not at the level observed on the show. And in the book, you know, we delve into this statistically to show that, you know, the anchoring is pretty extreme and counterproductive. Um, What is the sequential game and what do you mean when you say that they are solved by looking forward and reasoning backward? Sure. Um, You know, maybe just on the last question, Jim, you know, I, I think anchoring is also interesting in the world of stock investing. And maybe just to continue on that uh, thread before I yeah, get into the sequential game. So, you know, as an investor, we see anchoring in the stock market in various forms. You know, the most known form of stock anchoring is when you buy a security, it goes down, it's underwater, and you wait for it to return to your original purchase price before selling, uh, which is usually counterproductive. You know, in a little bit more of a nuanced fashion, you can see that trading multiples for stocks can get anchored to chronically low levels or chronically high levels. When a broad swath of market participants gets conditioned to that lower high trading multiple. And these anchor multiples can be hard to break, but they're good investing opportunities for investors that can identify you know, positive inflections, for example, a business model becoming less cyclical, which usually helps a stock's multiple, or negative inflections, such as a company that's been growing fast, you know, suddenly losing its ability to outgrow its end markets. So, you know, anchoring is something that, um, you know, I see a lot in my profession. Okay, so uh, uh, so let's get on to the idea of sequential games. Yeah, so... In game theory, a sequential game is one where contestants play sequentially. So that tip of, or that you know represents bidding in contestants row on the Price is Right, as well as spinning the wheel in the Showcase Showdown. You know, more complicated sequential games may involve multiple moves by the same players, such as games like Connect Four and chess. And sequential games are solved by looking at how the last player or the last move will respond to the next to last player's move, which then, you know, allows the next to last player to make a play that will maximize his or her expected payoff based on the expected reaction, you know, function of the last player. Going one step further, we can reason two players back and evaluate what that player should do based on how the next to last player and the last player will react to his or her move um, to maximize their payoff. So this process of reasoning backward is called backward induction, and um, it can be used to evaluate a simplified you know, version of contestants row bidding as sort of a starting point for the analysis of that part of the show. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, What is the go-high strategy and when is it advantageous? 
Yeah. So in the simplified game, I, I set up a simplified game where you basically have four bidders bidding in sequential order on a random number between zero and a hundred. And the game theory solution using, uh, you know, backward induction or reasoning backward would be for the first bidder to actually bid $78, the second bidder to bid $56, the third player to bid $34, and the fourth bidder to bid $1. And if all the players did that, the first three bidders would each win this random number game two-ninths of the time, and then the fourth bidder would win one-third of the time. And the earlier bidders are effectively going high to self-limit the set of values that they can win over to avoid being clipped by the fourth bidder. Well, when you combine the game theory outcome in the simplified game with this large propensity to underbid in contestants row bidding, it actually further strengthens the rationale for the first bidder to try to go high most of the time in his or her opening bid and then for the second bidder to take that high spot if the first bidder doesn't choose to go high. Ditto for the third bidder if the first and the second bidder don't go high. And then for the fourth bidder, who's usually deciding which of the prior bidders to clip, provided he doesn't see the $1 bid as beneficial, the fourth bidder's you know, best option is to usually clip the highest bidder. And if he had done that you know, every bidding round in seasons 47 to 48, which was the data set for my book, you know, he would have won over 50% of the time. And this go high strategy for the earlier bidders um, is very advantageous, assuming the retail price is above $1,000, which, you know, is probably occurs about two thirds to three quarters of the time, um, because there the propensity to underbid um, is pretty prevalent for prizes that are priced below a thousand dollars. It's not always the case that the go high strategy is the best strategy, but it's a very good starting point to think about how earlier bidders should tackle contestants row bid. You know, one of the things that I liked about your book was that there are a lot of situations in which you make analogies between what's going on in The Price is Right and what goes on in the real world. And one was when you describe something called broadening one's bid, which I think you referred to earlier in our conversation. And how, what is it and how can one use it when applying to college and grad school? Sure. So... You know, as mentioned earlier, broadening one's bid is a notion that you try and place a bid in contestants row that carves out a large range of reasonable values for the price of the item up for bids over which you can prevail versus the other contestants. It means not clustering too narrowly and not putting yourself in a position where your bid is likely to be clipped. You're effectively trying to avoid placing a similar bid to everyone else. So when applying for college and grad school, um, you know, candidates are evaluated across multiple criteria, not just, um, you know, a bid on a number line. But candidates are well served to try and stand out from the crowd in terms of qualities like extracurriculars or leadership activities versus just trying to stand out on standard quantitative metrics like GPA and standardized test scores. In other words, as a candidate, how can you create an application that scores well versus other potential applicants in a large number of scenarios 
you know, versus an application that can quickly be marginalized by another application that may have slightly better grades and slightly better standardized test scores. And, and we see that today, you know, when folks are applying to college and sometimes being coached and applying to college, that there's a lot more emphasis on broadening one's bid. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because when my wife was applying for teaching positions, when she just got out of grad school, she had to go in for interviews. And um, one of the things that I did, because I'd had a lot of experience with this, I said, what you have to do is you have to give an interview that shows that you are different because it's going to be very difficult to show that you are better. I mean, everybody knows that you're good when you give the interview. They invited you only people who are good, but you have to stand out. And so it's interesting to see that that applies elsewhere. Yeah, no, it shows up in all sorts of places in our professional lives. Yeah. Okay, let's get to the next portion of the show. How does the showcase showdown work? Sure. So I described it a bit earlier. You know, three contestants spin the big wheel and try and get closest to a dollar in one spin or a combination of two spins. There are 20 numbers on the wheel ranging from five cents to a dollar in increments of five cents interspersed, you know, in a way that appears fairly random across the wheel. And, you know, the first spinner, for the first spinner to win, his tally has to hold up versus both the second and the third spinner. And then for the second spinner to win, he has to first beat the first spinner's result, assuming the first spinner hasn't gone over a dollar and disqualified himself. And then the second spinner's spin, provided it's beaten the first spinner's spin, has to hold up versus the third spinner. The third spinner simply spins to beat the highest total, highest proceeding total, or if both players have gone over, the third player still spins once to see if he can land on $1 to get some extra cash and a bonus spin. Okay, uh, I can see that this has a very large mathematical component. From a game theory standpoint, what are optimal stopping strategies and how do they apply to Showcase Showdown? Yeah, the Showcase show is pure you know, mathematical game theory. Uh, it's not <laughs> you know, complicated by con- contestants having you know, different perceptions of the value of an item like they do in contestants' yeah. row bidding. Um, so in the showcase show, the second spinner, provided he has you know surpassed the first spinner, should stop at that value that maximizes his chances of prevailing over the third spinner. The first spinner, in turn, should stop at that value that maximizes his chances of prevailing over the first and second spinner versus you know spinning again. So one can solve this game theory problem using a Monte Carlo simulation, which I did with three thousand trials in Excel using if-then statements to recreate the rules of the showcase showdown. Monte Carlo simulations, you know, make it clear that the second spinner should stop at 55 cents and above versus spinning again. And the first spinner should stop at 70 cents and above versus spinning again. Interestingly, this is probably a bit higher for the first spinner than one might guess and a bit lower for the second spinner than one might guess as the first spinner's result needs to hold up versus two subsequent spinners each, you know, effectively with two spins to try and beat his or her total. Yep. Um, how does the showcase work? Okay. Uh, just one more uh, interesting comment on the showcase showdown, which I forgot to add. 
So once you have these appropriate strategies, you can actually simulate, you know, how much each of the spinners should win with rational play. And interestingly, this first spinner should win about 31 to 32% of the time. Second spinner should win 32 to 33% of the time. And the third spinner should win 35 to 36% of the time. And that's actually a lot less of an advantage for the third spinner than one might expect. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, I would have expected, you know, before I simulated this for the third spinner to be expected to win like 40% of the time. But it's it's actually much much closer despite the apparent advantage. But but on to the showcase. So in the showcase, to provide a little bit more detail, the two winners from the showcase showdown advanced to the showcase where they bid on a collection of prizes that during seasons 47 to 48 range from $20,000 to $40,000 and sometimes higher. The showcase showdown winner with the higher prize value leading up to the showcase is called the winner and gets to decide whether to bid on or pass the first showcase. If the winner bids on the first showcase, the other showcase showdown winner, the runner-up, bids on the second showcase. And if the winner passes, then the runner-up bids on the first showcase and quote-unquote winner bids on the second showcase. Whoever's closest to the actual price of his or her showcase without going over wins both showcases. And as mentioned, if both contestants overbid, there's no showcase winner. If one contestant wins and is within $250 of his showcase, he actually wins both showcases. That would generally happen once or twice a season. Making the contestant very happy, I'm sure. Yeah, very, very happy. (laughs) Um, You focus on something you call the mystery of second showcase underperformance. What is this and what were you able to conclude from your analysis? Sure. So perhaps, you know, the result of my analysis of the show, which perplexed me the most, was the fact that the contestant bidding on the first showcase won 53% of the time and the contestant bidding on the second showcase won 41% of the time, despite the showcases not materially deviating in value or degree of pricing difficulty. And then the other 6% of the time, both contestants went over. One would expect the contestant in the second showcase to do slightly better as he or she can react to bids on the first showcase, bidding tight if he views the first showcase bid as strong, or bidding conservatively if he suspects that the bidder on the first showcase overbid. But we observed the exact opposite. The second showcase bids went over 30% of the time and 45% of the time when the second showcase was the lower price showcase, which really drove the underperformance on the second showcase. Simply put, the bidder on the second showcase gets anxious after the bid on the first showcase is made, regardless of whether or not it was really a good bid, and then doesn't usually bid with enough of a margin of safety <laughs> on the second showcase. <laughs> um, okay, so how would this apply to real life situations? Yeah, you know, when I was working on this, I, I had no idea that this actually did apply to real life situations. And then someone who was um, taking a read through my book and providing some recommendations pointed out this famous study by a professor. Ignacio Palacios Huerta of the London School of Economics, who looked at 10,000 decisive penalty kick shootouts in professional soccer matches. And he found the team going second only won 40% of the time, with the team going first winning 60% of the time. 
The team going second effectively suffered from the same types of anxieties as contestants bidding on the second showcase, which is just fascinating. And then while not a sequential game, this notion of sort of anxiety when you're in a head-to-head contest with someone, you know, can sort of show up in a final round job interview. Um, Applicants may try to oversell themselves knowing that they have to beat out another strong candidate in the final round. And of course, you know, when a candidate tries to oversell himself or herself, it usually backfires by creating the impression that they're trying too hard. A little bit different than, you know, the sequential, you know, showcase or penalty kick shootout, but but still in the same ballpark. Okay, now we come to some of the pricing games that are an important part of the show. What are heuristics and pattern recognition, and what role do they play in pricing games and also in real life? Sure. So heuristics and pattern recognition are sort of shortcuts that human beings use to do better in decision-making. Um and in the price is right, they show up as number conventions in different pricing games. So in certain pricing games that are played for a car, the price of the car, the last digit of the price of the car, which is usually one of the harder, uh, I mean, the hardest digit to, to price out. In some games, the price of the last digit of the car is always zero. And in some pricing games, the price of the car is never zero. And if you know that, you can substantially improve your odds on those particular pricing games. Um, in real life, heuristics are, are, are everywhere. There are probably too many situations to begin to call out. But, you know, one of the things um, that is tied to heuristics is machine learning and artificial intelligence, because computers are effectively, you know, combing through data to find patterns some of which relate to some, you know, underlying mathematical, you know, relationship, and some of which are just observed patterns. So um, heuristics is, is, is the negative word. Machine learning is the positive word. <laughs> but the, the, I guess some the might feel it's the is, other way around. <laughs> the important thing is when you're using heuristics, you have to be on the lookout for when they stop working. Because the heuristics on the price is right are conventions that the show uses to make the pricing games easier for the contestants who are fortunate enough to pick up on them. But, you know, the show can change those heuristics at any point in time. They're not part of the mathematical structure of the game. They're just something that the game show does to make the games a bit easier. Okay. What is outlier recognition and how does it come into play in one wrong price? And what is its relevance to problems encountered in investing? Sure. So in The Price is Right, there's a game called One Wrong Price where contestants must guess which of three prizes is priced incorrectly to win all three prizes. So it was played 49 times in seasons 47 to 48. 19 times the low price shown uh, was the incorrect price. 19 times the high price shown was the incorrect price. And 11 uh, times the middle shown price was the incorrect price. Interestingly, all 19 times the low price prize was priced incorrectly, it was priced too low, and 15 of the 19 times the high price prize was priced incorrectly, it was priced too high. And almost all the time that the low price prize was priced particularly low, 
it was priced incorrectly. And almost all the times the high price prize was priced particularly high, it was priced incorrectly. So outliers usually were an indication of an incorrect price in this game. Well, in investing, outlier financial numbers are often a sign that something is amiss. A great example is General Electric at the end of Jeff Immelt's tenure, you know, going back five plus years. There was a lot of aggressive, borderline illegal accounting, which was opaque. But one part of the accounting which was somewhat visible was General Electric's power margins, which were near 20% at a very high level and far above the level of its competitors. Those margins were bolstered by contract accounting, whereby GE estimated the profitability of service contracts and booked those service contracts at relatively high expected profit margins. So something was amiss, and some analysts and investors caught on to the power margins being too high as a sign that GE was using aggressive accounting to inflate the profitability of their power business. So investors constantly need to scrutinize financial data that jumps out as being too extreme to gauge whether or not it's believable, and in turn, senior business executives need to do the same when evaluating financial data aggregated internally in case one of their business units is, is tampering with the data or using aggressive accounting. In the case of GE, there was you know, a lot of failure on both fronts. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm hearing the same type of thing in recent investigations of the Trump organization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's true as well. I, I don't know if it's uh, as sort of simple as a profit margin being too low or too high, but yeah, definitely some uh, data. Yeah. Well, when you see that one person, yeah, well, um, uh, (laughs) not my place to comment on it, but I would imagine that the types of uh, pattern outlier recognition that you see in valuation in the market sometimes comes into play in outlier evaluation of shady business dealings. Yeah, for sure. And GE sort of GE very much bordered on that during okay. the end of Emel's tenure. Um, can you give some examples of the more common price cast games in the Price is Right? Yeah, price cast games are some of the simple and quicker games on the show, uh, which are kind of the workhorse for you know a large number of the pricing games. And price cast games have the contestant choosing from two or more prices to price the prize in question. You know, some of the most Played pricing games include double prices where the contestant guesses which of two prices corresponds to the prize or side by side where the contestant has one two digit number stacked on top of another and must decide which two digits are the first two numbers in the four digit prize and which two digits are the last two numbers. There's a game called flip flop where the contestant reverses the first two digits in a four digit number to guess the price of the prize called flipping or can reverse the last two digits in that number, which is called flopping, or (laughs) they can reverse the first and last two digits, which is called flip-flopping. And interestingly, and back to the heuristics, the right pick in that game was never to flip-flop, which interestingly, contestants seemed to catch on to, or at least they never went down that path because of of its complexity. And that- (laughs) I think think the latter is the more likely example. Yeah, (laughs) that made the game easier and the performance better. Um, and price guess games, generally, they had high winning rates because the prize values were lower and, you know, they 
lended themselves to, you know, benefiting from heuristics like in flip-flop. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we discussed, you know, you discussed anchoring a little earlier, but uh, when we get on to the uh, pricing games, what is anchoring high and how does it apply to prestige pricing for luxury items? Sure. So in contestants row bidding and in games without a reference price, contestants were inclined to bid too low. In contrast, when games had reference prices to choose from, contestants seemed to gravitate toward the higher priced option. So in double prices, contestants chose the higher priced option in 43 out of 53 contests or 81% of the time, even though the higher priced option was the right choice only half the time. The contestants didn't want to think the prices right was cheap, and so they usually went with the more expensive option presented. In effect, they saw prizes on the show as you know a luxury item, and they assumed quality and prestige, and with that, the higher price selection. In the real world, for luxury goods, you know the way it plays out is that up to a point, the consumer is more likely to purchase the item in question if the price is higher. So these prizes generally, you know, behave somewhat like luxury goods. Yeah, I, uh, you, I've seen examples of that. I forgot. Um, in there, there's an eco, there's an economics term for that particular type of good, which I seem to have forgotten at the moment. Um, anyway, though, uh, moving on, what is something that you call strategic patience? How does it differ from ordinary patience? How can it be used in negotiation? This can be very valuable, I think. Yeah, for sure. You know, ordinary patience is something we all need you know, to do better at. But strategic <laughs> patience is when being patient leads to a better expected negotiated outcome um, in the real world. On the show, as I mentioned, there are you know, three pricing games where patience is required in the game for the price to build to a level that corresponds to ours in the ballpark of the, the price of the prize being offered in that pricing game. And in all three games, card game, range game, and that's too much, contestants stop too soon, such that most of their losses occurred by guessing too low of a price versus too high of a price. But the driver here wasn't underbidding, rather it was impatience in the game. So in negotiations, buyers often pay too much by failing to show what I call strategic patience. Think of buying a house in a balanced housing market. If you are in no rush to move and you see a desirable house come onto the market, you're better off waiting a month or two to see if the seller drops the price, which usually will occur after a month or two. If you're worried about you know potentially missing out, you can let the seller's realtor know of your interest should another serious buyer enter the fray. Similarly, if you're buying a company, you don't need to be in a rush to meet the seller's ask simply because you're afraid of other interested parties bidding, you know, particularly if the price that's being asked is expensive or, you know, the current favorable business conditions may not be sustainable. So recently, the steel company Nucor failed to show strategic patience when it bought CHI overhead doors, the third largest garage door maker, paying the seller KKR's full ask so as to avoid a competitive bidding process. In this situation, it was unclear if there were other bidders interested, and higher interest rates certainly suggested a deteriorating future outlook for garage door sales versus what was sort of being enjoyed at the time that the asset was put up for sale. So that's, you know, a business situation where strategic patience is needed. 
Um, yeah, I would imagine also there are there are certain negotiating situations in the real world, especially the one that involves the housing market, as you point out. I think that's for most people, uh, that's the major negotiation that they make in their life, or at least the major decision. I know uh, uh, it it was the one I moved from an apartment to a house just once, and uh, it was it was a uh, it was a stress filled experience. So. Maybe I'd better have been better off I'd, if I'd read this book uh, previously. <laughs> I think <laughs> easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, some of the cash games on The Price is Right are very creative. Why don't you choose a couple of your favorites and share some insight into how to play them? Sure. I'll just choose one because it requires some uh, storytelling sure. just to describe the rules. and. Most people love Plinko, but my favorite cash game, which is also my kid's favorite cash game, is Hot Seat. The contestant here sits in a hot seat that moves along a track and has 35 seconds to guess higher or lower for the displayed price of five small items, typically costing between $10 and $200. After the contestant makes his guesses during that 35-second interval, Drew then reveals, Drew Carey then reveals whether the contestants' guesses are correct, one at a time, and starting with the correct contestants' correct picks. The first correct pick is worth $500, the second correct pick $2,500, the third correct pick $5,000, the fourth $10,000, and the fifth $20,000. The contestant can stop at any time because if the next price revealed runs counter to his pick of higher or lower, he loses everything. Well, it turns out that the average contestant makes the correct high-low call two-thirds of the time and thus should always play to see if he wins $5,000 by getting the third pick correct, as on average he will have at least three items correct. When you look at playing for $10,000, it's a closer call. Assuming that two-thirds of the items are priced correctly, the contestant has slightly greater than a 50-50 chance of having four items priced correctly conditional upon, you know, having already had three items priced correctly. And so this justifies risking $5,000 to play for $10,000, unless the contestant feels particularly iffy about the item in question. Finally, if the contestant gets to $10,000, the reverse is true. His odds of winning $20,000 conditional on getting to $10,000 are quite less, below 30%. And he should be extra certain on the fifth and final item to justify risking $10,000 to win $20,000, as most of the time he he won't prevail. So that's uh, our favorite game in the family. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, uh, I think that uh, I don't know how many people get to play The Price is Right on the actual show during the course of a year, but it's clear from this conversation that anybody who thinks who's planning on attending the show and thinks there's even a remote chance that they'll get down to contestants, so they'd benefit by reading this book because there's a lot of helpful tips there. I hope so. That, that was the initial <laughs> impetus for the book. Yeah. <laughs> Admittedly, over the uh, I hope your book sells uh, more than just to people who are potential contestants. And that's one of the reasons that hopefully people will listen to this podcast. Anyway, how is the grocery game checkout played and how does it relate to merger arbitrage? Sure. Um, so in the game checkout, a contestant has to guess the price of five grocery items one at a time, such that the sum total of his guesses is within $2 
plus or minus of the sum total of those five items. And contestants in checkout almost always focus on guessing the price of each item rather than thinking about what they want the sum total to amount to, thus letting underestimation or overestimation errors compound in some cases. So in effect, they miss the big picture of the game by focusing on the individual task at hand. So in merger arbitrage investing, the typical playbook is to buy the stock of the target company once a deal is announced so as to capture the spread between the target company's price after the deal is announced and the offer price, a return that's usually realized over a few months and is uncorrelated with the market. However, sometimes the buyer makes an offer on another company to avoid being acquired by a third company. And an investor buying the stock of the target can lose big if that third company moves forward to try and acquire the buyer because the target stock, which has then moved up usually substantially on the bid, then collapses. And this happens a number of times, but in 2014, there was one noteworthy case when packaged meat company Hillshire Brands made a takeover offer for Pinnacle Foods only to receive an offer, a takeover offer from JBS a few weeks later which then caused the stock of Pinnacle Foods to give back its substantial gains triggered by the Hillshire bid. So a good merger arb investor is always trying to ascertain whether the buyer might become the target of another company before executing the standard playbook, because if they make a mistake, it can really, you know, damage their performance for the year. Um, well, I'd sort of like to conclude this interview with one of the th- one of the games uh, called Ten Chances, because the strategy of listening to the audience applies to this game, and it has a wonderful application to everyday life. And I think that you know that's the what I think was so delightful about reading your book is that for the people who are planning on reading it, there are a lot of instances in the book where the analogy is made directly directly between what happens in the price is right and a particular situation and the one uh uh this this one really impressed me uh the game is 10 chances and the strategy is listening to the audience and it's a strategy we often encounter in real life yeah so in the game 10 chances <clears throat> the contestant is playing for a car and has 10 total chances to first guess the price of a two digit prize using two of the three digits provided um, for that prize. Then secondly, the price of a four-digit prize using three of four digits provided for that prize. And third, the price of the car using all five digits provided. And if he gets all three correct in 10 tries or less, he wins the car. Interestingly, the prizes of all three prizes always ended in zero, at least in seasons 47 to 48 they did. And contestants are often not aware of this as the game is infrequently play, but the audience usually is. So listening to the audience here would point the contestant in the right direction and give him or her very high odds of winning, as there are often not many more than 10 reasonable selections for pricing the three prizes, assuming, you know, zero is the last digit. And contestants that catch on to this, either themselves or by listening to the audience, usually win the game, and ones that don't hardly ever win the game. So in real life, you know, I think we're often very well served to listen to the audience. And 
I went through this with my own book writing effort in the literary world, you know, literary agents are the audience. If you're trying to go down the commercial publishing path, which I was, they know what's needed to secure a publishing deal. And they usually have a better idea as to what sell books. And so authors that ignore feedback from literary agents, you know, do so at their own peril. And in my case, you know, I had to quickly assimilate feedback from agents that evaluated my book and, you know, particularly the agent, John Willie, that ultimately represented me and incorporate that feedback, you know, very quickly. Had I not listened to the audience, you know, I might still be trying to look uh, for a path to market for my book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we can all benefit by listening to the audience because I've always felt that if you listen to a lot of intelligent people on any one situation, usually you get a much better idea of uh, what the correct solution or uh, view to take is than if you just stay in, you know, uh, sort of, you know, listen to the, you know, preaching to the choir or, uh, or listening or only heeding your own advice. And, Things like this, that's what I enjoyed about reading your book, is you sometimes find that here's this sort of, you know, here's a game show which has been tremendously popular for 50 years, but there's a reason beyond just the fact that the ga- I think that the game show itself is enjoyable. I think that people sort of indirectly get the idea, they watch it, they see situations, and whether or not they always do it consciously, they might be doing it subconsciously, they learn something from watching the show that might have some application to the real world. And that's what Justin has done in the book. He's he's basically codified this and gone, uh, you know, done it much more precisely than most of us do rather than just doing it subconsciously. Yeah, that's totally spot on. I mean, you know, when you watch the show, you sort of know that there's some interesting math behind it. And you sort of know that it bears some similarities to in the real world, but it's often hard to sort of put your finger on it. Yeah, but you watch enough shows, you probably learn by listening to the audience, as it were. Yeah. Okay. Um, Justin, um, uh, how, what we usually do is we ask people how, uh, how listeners can get in touch with them. Sure. So I've created an author website at popculturemath.com, um, which includes a number of interesting blog entries relating to popular math subjects uh, outside of the book. And I also have pop culture math as my Twitter handle. And if you'd like to email me, you can reach out to me at popculturemathjb at gmail.com, which you can also find on the website. And, you know, what comes next, I'd like to add more uh, to the blog, which I haven't done too much new on to, you know, focus on getting the book out. And, you know, I have a conceptual idea for my next book. So stay tuned. Although, you know, this was quite a, a Herculean effort. Yeah, I can. <laughs> to, yeah. Anybody who picks up the book will realize how much, how much work you did in putting it together. Yeah. So it's probably going to be a few years before I commence my, <laughs> my next book idea. But, um, you know, I hope to ultimately, you know, do stuff in this pop culture math arena, um, you know, beyond just this book. Uh, thank you very much, Justin. Take care. Thanks so much, Jim.